Major funding for Telehell is provided by Dave's Archives. At Dave's Archives, he personally transfers, archives, and preserves classic commercials from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s and shares them with you. Don't forget about his Friday Night Live stream on, well, guess when? Go to davesarchives.com. By RetroCirc. Take a not-so-silent journey through millennial and Gen X nostalgia with RetroCirc. Look for them on YouTube under RetroCirc, spelt with a Q at the end. RetroCirc, where the Q is not quiet. And by the very generous benefactors who grace us on our Patreon at patreon.com slash telehealthpodcast, including Rhonda Farrell, Rick Kalaki Jr., Chris Michaud, Man Mojack, Meredith Morrissey, Justin Moses, Rabbites, Spare Parts, and Neil Weinstein. Thank you. So far, we've taken a look at a show whose newness was largely arbitrary and unnecessary. To create a TV show so daring, so original, that only now, 25 years later, can it be shown to you, the American public. And we've also taken a look at a show whose newness was as much a part of their branding as it was about riding the wave of popularity. We're the new kids on the block. Now you can hang up with us 24 hours then, a brand new hotline. Just pick and now, for the sake of brundle-flying things, we're about to combine the two into a single entity. A show that's new, cashes in on a popular trend, and yet is more unnecessary than having a third nipple. All that said, fire in the hole! Yes! It's alive! It's alive! Why is this thing alive? Hey, it up with your letters, your it's all to pick successors to the old monkeys for a new syndicated TV series called, what else, The New Monkey. And now. Announcing something new. It slices, it dices, fights rust and corrosion. And just one calorie. Guaranteed for five years or 50,000 miles. Cuts waxy buildup. Yes, you'll never scrub again. It's new, new, new. It's the new shows. In Telehealth. You can't really appreciate what we're going to be talking about today without diving a little deeper than we usually do. So buckle up. Our story begins in the early 1960s, where a pair of aspiring filmmakers named Bob Rafelson and Bert Schneider were trying to find their way into the world of showbiz. Rafelson had an idea about the life and times of an up-and-coming fictional music group and all the troubles they would find themselves getting into all over the world. An idea he came up with in 1962 with little takers or even the slightest bit of interest from major studios. Many years would pass, with many more rejections being passed along. And for a while, Rafelson and Schneider thought their idea would never take off. Never that is, until 1964, when all of a sudden... The Beatles! Blah, 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 cultural revolution. 
So much so that practically everyone in show business wanted to horn in on the action. And with the iron so hot that it's practically molten, it wouldn't be long until none too eager figures in show business wanted to break off a piece of Beatlemania for themselves. From worthy adversaries, genuine imitators, and shameless duplicators, the Beatles pretty much triggered a tidal wave of fab once they graced the stage of the Ed Sullivan Theater. And as long as the iron was hot, that gave Rafelson and Schneider one more chance to bring their pseudo-Beatles to life, which they would eventually do one year later in 1965. When the duo would sell their idea to the TV division of Columbia Pictures, Screen Gems. Once they sold the concept, the next step was bringing their idea to life. But since they were still aspiring filmmakers, the task of actually bringing the idea to life fell in the hands of veteran TV writers Paul Mazursky and Larry Tucker. The overall plan for the series was to come up with a show that reflected avant-garde film techniques, such as improv, quick cuts, jump cuts, fourth wall breaks, and loose narratives. Each episode would contain at least one musical number, which might not have anything to do with the storyline, but could easily pass as the 1960s equivalent of a music video. Rafelson and Schneider also believed strongly in the program's ability to appeal to young people, intentionally framing the kids as heroes and the adults as antagonists. In other words, this show walked so that future shows like Laugh-In and, to a lesser extent, Turn-On could either run or hit a brick wall at 100 miles an hour, respectively. Then there were the people who screened Gems cast to play the made-for-TV musicians. From a cattle call of approximately 400 hopefuls, four were chosen to be the band, three of whom actually had backgrounds in music before the show was ever even a thought. Former child actor Mickey Dullins, British stage performer and, conveniently enough, Columbia Pictures day player Davy Jones, noted musician of multiple instruments Peter Tork, and, reportedly, the only person from the cattle call of auditions to actually be picked, the son of the inventor of liquid paper whiteout, Michael Nesmith. The rest is history. The original Monkees TV series ran for a total of 58 episodes from September 1966 to March 1968, and in spite of how relatively short the run of the show was, its impact on viewers would prove to be long-lasting, to say nothing of the positively stunning impact it would have on its peers in the TV industry, when in 1967, I swear I'm not making this up, the show actually won the Emmy Award for Outstanding Comedy Series. In Hollywood, the winner is the Monkees. Let's just put that into perspective for a second. This was a show that was up against the likes of established classics like Hogan's Heroes, The Andy Griffith Show, and Get Smart, and it still won for Best Comedy Series. To say nothing even further of the impact their music made on its audience outside the TV show, the cumulative total of over 75 million records sold worldwide throughout the band's existence. And every last piece of the group's success was in spite of the fact that, when they were first starting out, they received instant criticism over how many manufactured they were as a band that was literally and figuratively made for television. Even some of the young viewers who the show was targeted to had their doubts. Ew, you like the monkeys? You know they don't write their own songs. They do so! They don't even play their own instruments. <gasps> no! No! That's 
real hat. But regardless of any criticism, as well as the fact that they eventually did write their own songs, play their own instruments on future albums, and Nesmith would wind up wearing his own hats, the Monkees both earned and deserved their place in the pop cultural lexicon, even long after the TV series went away. 20 years after that first episode debuted, however, the four band members decided to come together again for the first time in a reunion concert tour nationwide, which also led to a marathon of the 60s series airing on MTV later that same year. Hi, we're the Monkees, or at least two of them, and this is a two-shot, which we know that's an expression that they use when they direct, and I know that because I directed this episode that you're watching or were. And you did a fine job, too. Thanks very much, Mickey. It's easy for you to say so, knowing that I have to say the same thing back to you because Mickey also directed the show. You're going to that one. And it's tough directing uh, people who don't know their bacon from a hole in the ground. With the band's popularity as big as it ever was, it seems like a foregone conclusion that somebody wanted to keep that wave of success and nostalgic pandering going. And according to David Hofstede's book, What Were They Thinking?, those somebodies were Bob Rafelson and Bert Schneider, who, in the wake of the newfound popularity, decided to make a pitch for a revival of some kind to an executive at Columbia Pictures Television. Not just any executive, but the one who helped greenlight the original series in the first place, Steve Blauner, who, we should mention, was well into his retirement from the company in 1986. Reportedly, at the mere mention of the word monkeys, Blauner wouldn't and didn't want to hear another word about it, as if it was the most annoying sound in the world to him. Guys! 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 Eventually, Blauner wore down and agreed to see if lightning would strike a second time by becoming the executive producer in this new enterprise, with Schneider and Rafelson attached to produce the show through a newly formed company called Strabert Entertainment who in turn bring on a pair of up-and-coming creatives to spearhead the show's development. Matthew Fassberg, whose resume is unknown to us, and Victor Fresco, who would go on to create brilliant but cancelled shows like Andy Richter Controls the Universe, Better Off Ted, and Santa Clarita Diet, among many others. And with MTV pulling in high ratings from the marathon of the 60s reruns, you would think they would be the natural habitat for these new monkeys to call their home. But you would be wrong. What about the other networks? I doubt established tentpoles like ABC, CBS, and NBC would want to take part in any of this. But there was the then-brand-new Fox network. A young network looking for young content. Or any content, for that matter. It's not like they had anything to lose, right? Okay, what about the rest of cable? It was still in its Wild West phase of its existence, but surely there had to have been channels out there that were starving for original, non-rerun, non-sports-related content. None of the above was interested in the next generation of monkeys. But that didn't mean the next generation wouldn't find a home anywhere. And with that, I seriously can't believe that we've been doing this now for 95 shows, and we have yet to talk about something that we should have discussed several times by now. So, if you still have your showbiz glossary, dust it off and crack it open as we finally explain to you... Syndication! Okay, I'm going to try to keep this as brief as I possibly can here, partly because TV syndication has a vast amount of well, vastness in its operation. So forgive me in advance if I do a little rip and read. 
The basic, and I do mean basic, version is that broadcast syndication is the practice of content owners leasing the rights to broadcast television shows and radio programs to multiple TV stations and radio stations without going through a broadcast network. It's common in the United States where broadcast programming is scheduled by TV networks with local independent affiliates. Syndication is less widespread in the rest of the world as most countries have centralized networks or TV stations without local affiliates, of which there are technically three types. First run, off-network, and public broadcasting. But since we're more than likely never going to cover a PBS show here in our afterlife, we'll skip that. Off-network syndication are those shows that originally aired in prime time on broadcast television. Those are the shows that you see five days a week, or daily stripped, most often if a series hits 100 episodes or more. And then, there's first-run syndication. This is wholly original content that's sold directly to stations and station groups. These would be things like cartoons, game shows, talk shows, news magazines, sports programs, variety shows, and other bits of filler that are meant to keep TV stations from being a 24-7 loop of infomercials. And, right up until recently in TV history, two other kinds of shows were part of the first-run umbrella, scripted dramas and scripted comedies. There are many other facets to syndication to discuss, but I'd like to finish this episode before here freezes over. And given the weather of January so far, that's actually an outside chance at this point. For now, though, this show would be a first-run syndicated sitcom. And thanks to the rights to the original program being owned by Columbia Pictures via Screen Gems, you would think that they would be the ones who put the show on overall. You'd only be quasi-right, and yes, that would make this three mini-backstories in this episode. I like to ride the world and keep it company. Okay, super short version. One of the more unusual media partnerships to take place in the 1980s was the time when the Coca-Cola Company, yes, I'd like to buy the world Coca-Cola Company, entered a joint venture between Columbia Pictures Television and another syndicator called the Television Program Source, forming a syndication arm called Coca-Cola Telecommunications, a venture that would, surprisingly, end after a little over a year and get absorbed into an ever-increasing portfolio of TV properties that would eventually become Sony Pictures Television. But it was because of that connection to Screen Gems that the new monkeys would find its main distributor, Colex Enterprises, which itself was part of a joint venture between Columbia Pictures and Lexington Broadcast Services, or LBS, and I can't take it anymore! Why am I talking about syndication companies when I should be talking about the monkeys of the 1980s? Please stand by while our host regains his sanity. Stand by while our host regains his sanity. Please stand by while our host regains his sanity. Now I'm starting to see why I should never talk about syndication ever, if I can help it. To resume the subject at hand, once again, a cattle call was made to search for four new actors-slash-musicians who would try to encapsulate what made the original Monkees popular in the first place, but with a slightly more modern edge for the 1980s. There was a lot of monkey business going on on the west side of Manhattan today. New Monkees in a new television series. Today, Columbia Pictures Television began a search for four new monkeys. 
Thousands waited hours to audition for a spot in the new Monkees television show, a remake of the 60s smash. Who's next? This time, an estimated three to 5,000 people seeked out to become the successor to musicians with primates for a name. Four were selected, each of them having some level of background in the music business already. On guitar and vocals, Jared Chandler. On drums and vocals, Dino Kovas. On bass and vocals, Marty Ross. And on lead guitar and vocals, Larry Saltis. Now that the new monkeys were cast, there were still a few lingering questions in the air. One being that, sure, they seem to have musical talent on their own, but a major part of the original monkey's success was how well they performed as a group. They wouldn't have been able to sell 75 million records in their lifetime if they didn't. Would the new monkeys fare just as well? Not to bury the lead again, but while I'm sure there are many reasons why one group was more popular than the other, it would be unfair to say that the group as a music group paled in comparison to their predecessors. I've heard some of the band's one and, unfortunately, only album, and I say unfortunately only because if you squint a little hard at it, the group actually sounded pretty good together. They didn't quite sound like you too, but I would certainly put them on a CD compilation of 80s deep cuts. Of course, we're also not a music review program. I mean, I like my fair share of music, but I'm no Todd in the Shadows by any means. We're here to see if four reasonably talented musicians can act the same way three actor musicians and one son of a whiteout maker can also act. And for the answer to that, there needed to be a proof of concept. Which, if you remember our show on 2020's pilot episode way back in episode 7, basically it's not so much a pilot as it's more of a sales tape. A 15 minute short and to the point way to let people know what they're getting themselves into before they even consider buying the show. Almost literally in this case since, once again, syndication is all about TV stations buying content. So now, let's see what Coca-Cola, Colex, LBS, Columbia Pictures, and everybody else involved in this nostalgic cash-in had to sell us. The year 1987. The Iran-Contra hearings made America think twice about who to sell weapons to. My primary source of Segway gags, The Simpsons, would debut as short cartoons on The Tracy Ullman Show. And somewhere in the screening room of Columbia Pictures, with ice-cold Coca-Cola presumably sold in the lobby, executives were given a first glimpse of new creatures that monkey around. Introducing... Larry. It's really hard to tell. I really don't know how I could have been picked out of so many people. Jared. You're just a grocery clerk sent by a bunch of... I don't even remember. Can we try it again? Yeah. Marty. Uh, let me fix that. I've lost 10 pounds because I was just sweating bullets. I mean, I tried. It. There we go. And Dino. <laughs> oh man, who put this there? I'm hoping they have more to say than this. Well, Larry, um, he's from Ohio. I think that covers it right there. <laughs> I think I've gotten closer to Dino just because I've been around him more, and we're the two from the Midwest that got picked. Larry's a nice kid. Believe it or not. Jared is... <laughs> Jared's a loon. <laughs> he loves surf. If he doesn't have surfing, forget it. You know, he gets depressed. Jared is... Uh, 
Jared's an interesting guy. Marty's a weird guy. He's a very talented guy, though. And he has a normal haircut. Marty likes to, ah! you know, he just screams. Ah! And the little dog. No! I, I have a dog. I'd be kind of discriminating against okay. my dog if I did that. I, I know it feels I tempting to dunk on these people in their first 90 seconds of TV exposure, but I'm not going to. Because, to be completely fair, I'm pretty sure the original monkeys faced similar scrutiny when they debuted, and they endured. In the meantime, we see the new monkeys rise to stardom. Starting once again with the aforementioned casting call, leading up to the big moment. Once again, Larry. Finest memory is this, will be this whole experience, because the whole experience was a surprise, as I said before. Coming home from work and mother and father have two tickets on the table. Dino. You're laughing because it never happened to you. Let me. And it got hit twice in six days, and the second time it got hit, the kid tried to take off. Marty. Television is even more fun. I watch it nightly. And Jared. Thanks. Thank you, Jared. Oh, it's over? Oh, okay. Next up, we get to see the newly formed Prefab 4 do a screen test to prove to the executives that they know what they're doing on camera. Hey, Dino. Hey, what's going on? Little brother, hey, I got a favor to ask of you. Yeah, but you don't like it, lady. Keep your poodle off the sidewalk and I won't run him over, all right? I seen you coming. I seen your car pull up. Yeah, I got really great news, Dino. I can tell you look excited. <coughs> Yeah, well, yeah. you know my algebra teacher? Yeah. Mrs. Miss Arnold, nice blonde hair, nice legs. Yeah. Nice everything. Well, you know those uh, private tutoring sessions I've been having? Yeah, what about them? They're going real well. They're going real... You got that twinkle in your eye. I don't think they're going too good. <laughs> hey, we're, ta we're talking big twinkle. You know why? Yeah. I don't have to get good grades anymore. Given like the this. benefit like of a doubt so large, you can market it as the icon of the seas. These are people who have never acted before. And all of what you just heard was improvised. Though, if that's what the improvised stuff was, I dare ask what the scripted stuff is gonna be. But we'll have to wait on the wonder because we now get to glide through the band's sudden, and I do mean sudden, rise to fame. Through a process too intricate and random to go into, the four were finally selected. Now they had only one burning question. What I wanna know is when do we get to play? But playing together would have to wait, because first it was time for America to meet its new monkeys. So, yes, the first part of the pitch film was really more of a getting-to-know-you kind of thing that doesn't really bring along any signs of trouble ahead. It's just four kids thrust suddenly into a world of popularity and getting their feet wet. What was really going to sell the TV stations was how the band was going to do in a more controlled situation. Hey, hey, are these four guys great or what? They got charisma, they got, they got style, they got music. I'd stake my life on these guys. Well, maybe somebody's life, we'll find somebody's life. I mean, maybe his life. Sign with me! And I'll make you bigger than Bert Condy and Sonny Bono. No, 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 not quite as big as Vanna White. Almost as big as a Miss Infield. Awesome. And... But when we get to sing? You guys sing? No, no, Ma. We're just, we're just signing contracts. We're... Who is that, dude? Excuse me. Someone named Mom. If by controlled, you mean the inhabitants of an insane asylum writing the show. 
In case it wasn't already obvious, the new version of the monkeys seemed to want to be just like the old version. Full of fast cuts, rapid fires, one-liners, fourth wall breaks, and other forms of visual bombardment that would actually make Turn On look quaint in comparison. Robin Leach here with our new monkeys! When relaxing in their palatial office, the boys enjoy dining on crack crab and water skiing on the Riviera. Hello, monkeys! Show me your bathroom. Thanks. You're kidding. A place to play? A place to jam? A place to sing? No, Who wrote this stuff for this guy? A fair question. After all, no TV show, with the exception of Curb Your Enthusiasm and Whose Line Is It Anyway, can truly be improvised. For the new monkeys, the show had the best sitcom writers that syndication could buy, including Fassberg and Fresco, but also Fresco's brother Rob, and a handful of others who don't even have their own Wikipedia entry. Moving on, we actually get to hear the Neo Prefab 4 do some actual singing, but not before some torch passing is done via archival footage of the original monkeys. Some of which, by the by, was actually meant to happen in the show's eventual first episode. Once upon a time, at a place called Yahoo, Yahoo! An oral history of the new monkeys was written, and buried among some of the remembrances from the group was the tidbit that the show's actual pilot was supposed to be directed by OG monkey Mickey Dolenz, who responded, quote, They asked me to direct the pilot. The original monkeys were on the road at the time, in 86, selling out 10,000 seaters. They said, You guys should be in it, and you can sort of hand the baton over to the new guys. I was like, Screw you, I ain't giving the baton to nobody. End quote. New monkey Marty Ross confirmed the sentiment by saying, quote, Mickey told me to my face, yeah, I was supposed to direct the pilot. They offered him to direct the pilot. I immediately thought about how that would have been great for us, but what's in it for him? And the other guys would probably just castrate him for it, end quote. And both make valid points. After all, these new monkeys were trying to be their own thing while the old monkeys were enjoying a career renaissance. While it might have been nice for the new to get a bump from the old, it made more sense for the new to be its own thing, even if it meant borrowing an element or two from the old thing. Like random moments that don't really add or subtract anything from the plot. Termites! Termites on the rampage! Yeah, and they're headed this way. Better move my car! Your car! To be continued. Right now. I, I, I don't know, Marty, you want, you want to continue? Jared? Continue what? Or not. As we wrap up this pitch film by having the new monkeys perform a song that I'm certain was going to be one of their biggest hits. I'm, I'm just one of the boys. And more or less, I'm leaning towards less, that's pretty much what the powers that be were trying to pitch to TV stations. A version of the monkeys that weren't 100% identical to their originators, but still carried on their spirits somewhat. How would this translate into a fuller, half-hour form? We'll find out if the new monkeys' popularity have the strength of silverback gorillas, or if they deserve to remain the missing link... After the break... 
I'd do it in a second. The fans will dig it. They've waited long enough. I've just got to get the other lads to agree. I think I can convince them. I'll say, lads, the time has come to eat our pizza. Crust first. Stuffed crust pizza from Pizza Hut with cheese baked into a new thinner crust. You'll want to eat it crust first. Now with free garlic dipping sauce. Good idea, Ringo. Yeah. Yeah. Not the lads I had in mind. Large, just $9.99. This week on Telehell's premium content of the damned. The utterly brilliant passing of Roger Staubach. The thing about Roger is the way he diversifies his receivers. In the case you're looking at, the great tight end, Billy Joe Dupree. But Roger can hit anyone at any time. The other thing about Dallas is it's such a complete football team. On defense, the Cowboys are the NFC's leading sacking team with 25 on the season. This time, Bruce Thornton, the rookie from Illinois, doing it to Evans of the Bears. The only way to listen to Telehell's premium content of The Damned is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash podcast for just a few bucks a month. You can listen to our premium content and get some swag along the way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash podcast. And now, Back to this week's torture. September 14th, 1987. Initial plans are made for a summit between the US and Soviet Union later that year. The Toronto Blue Jays set a then record for most home runs hit in a single game, with 10 of them. And because this is a syndicated show, you'd have to check your local listings, as they say, because whenever that time was where you lived, we're greeted to the 1980s equivalent of young people who are monkeying around. Fast cuts, random gags, fancy editing techniques, not unlike the original show. After that inundation of the sense of sight, we're greeted by a pair of disembodied lips? Did they put on the Rocky Horror Picture Show by mistake? Hi. How you doing? Good. Want to meet the new monkeys? First, let me show you what they looked like a year ago. As we once again see footage from the same screen test that they did in the pilot film, at least that saves us a step. But about those lips for a second? What do you think? You like the guys? Uh, they're pretty cool. You might say they're personal friends of mine. I'm Helen and I run this place. It's just me and the boy. Oh yeah, and there's this old dude, the butler. At least that's what he calls himself. I call him a... Hello. Okay, one random person at a time. The lips are those of character actress Linny Godfrey who would make her fair share of one-shot appearances throughout the 80s and 90s, and also one of the key players on one of the rare failures that the late Norman Lear had to his name. More on that when I feel like it. The lips she's providing in this show are that of a being called Helen. She's there to be the sentient being that operates the large house that our new monkeys seem to be occupying. One so big that they happen to have their own butler co-running things, played by old school character actor Gordon Osheim. 
Incidentally, IMDB has the new monkeys as the last role he would ever play before seemingly dropping off the face of the earth for almost 30 years, ultimately passing away in 2015. But I'm sure he did many other things to pass the time. I'm Manfred, and I run this house, and let me tell you, it's no easy task. It's a large house. A wealth of information for sure, as we also introduce ourselves to one other non-monkey participant to the proceedings. A waitress dressed in 50s diner attire due to the fact that the house is big enough to have a full-time diner in place of a kitchen. She would be played by yet another character actor, Bess Mata, who just a few years earlier made her claim to fame as a human shield for Linda Hamilton. if you want to live. And with our supporting cast introduced, we now have the first major difference between this show and the original show. I don't seem to recall the OG monkeys having a butler, a waitress, or a disembodied set of lips for sidekicks. They got into adventures on their own while occasionally coming across people who were either part of the establishment of the 1960s or somebody that they were trying to rescue from said establishment. Or to put it another way... Monkeys weren't about music, they were about rebellion, about political and social upheaval. Second. I'm guessing because they had a bigger budget in the 1980s, they wanted to go whole hog with everything. So why not give the new monkeys a house with seemingly no limitations at all, while the OG monkeys spend their time in a ramshackle beach house? It's creative licensing gone amok. We see that the first episode's title is... Weather the Storm. So let me guess, is this about how the boys cope with a rainy day outside? looking for something to do in their panoramic palace that's remotely fun, or... Guys, maybe we don't need the recording studio. We can do the rock video right here. Yeah, in a hallway? It's really gonna happen in a hallway, Marty. Let's just try it. Come on. Come on, come on, feel it. Assault the senses with pointless filler. Please tell me there's an actual plot. Anything of significance that would help enhance our knowledge of these four individuals? Like, anything at all? Ah! No monkeys! I heard you were moving in. Please have a seat. I'll be with you in a moment. Give me something I can work with here. Moving it, Dino. Ah, a little bit of rain never hurt nobody. you couldn't gather from that, the story of this episode is the fact that after opening a door to, I'm guessing their weather room, who doesn't have one of those, a rain cloud latches on to Dino and it rains on him everywhere he goes. And it's then up to the rest of the house to figure out how to get rid of it. Now, once again, to compare and be fair, the original series also had their fair share of things that bordered on the fantastical, up to including going toe-to-hoof with our boss. Oh, you think I'm making that up? Roll it! I just purchased the soul of a Mr. Peter Tork. 
soul. Some say it's a man's heart or spirit. Certainly without it, we cannot survive. For no man can live without love. But for the most part, a majority of stories on the original show kept things relatively down to earth. Here now is a partial list of actual storylines that viewers in 1987 were in for. A story where Marty falls asleep on a copy machine and clones himself. A story where Larry and Dino are thrust into a parallel universe. Not one, but two stories involving a TV remote control helping the real world mash up with its televised self, and perhaps the most unrealistic story of the 13 shows that aired, a story about meeting Pope John Paul II. Well, okay, maybe not unrealistic, but the odds were still astronomical. Let's not mince words. But sure, let's have a rain cloud follow a band member for 30 minutes while we give our suspension of disbelief some tequila to help kill some time. This is it, this is the video. All right, let's do it. Oh man, we were so close to a video, I could taste it. Well, enough of that plot. Let's all go to the diner to kill some time on the clock. As we are now introduced to Larry's date of the week for no other reason than to pad things out and also to give the waitress her sag after a check. Yeah, really beautiful eyes. Oh, thank you, Larry. Can I freshen that for you? No, Rita, I'm fine, thank you. Sure, there's absolutely nothing I can do for you? No, really. Uh, we're fine. You know, Lair, I was thinking, we've got this really fantastic carrot cake. Rita, no, thank you. I'd like some carrot cake. Oh, you would? Just remembered. Sold the last piece. <laughs> Here's a good idea. Have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. So, how does one get rid of a rain cloud hanging over one's head? Adjust the atmospheric pressure, suck out the water vapor with a vacuum hose, point a sun lamp at it, none of the above. Smoke. You've got to have smoke. If you don't use smoke, you don't have to smoke. You've got to use smoke. Yeah. <laughs> this is it. This is the video. Let's go. Because they're not actually going to do that right now. Instead, we have one of a number of musical interludes made for the show, something that the original series also did. Except here, because it's the MTV generation, we get it with the listing of a title, artist, and record label. Or at least we're supposed to get an interlude here were it not for Dino literally and figuratively storming in. So I'm hoping it's here where we try to figure out how to get rid of a rain cloud, right? Anything involving storytelling? Character development? Or just progress? Any progress of any kind? Please? Dino! <laughs> oh, someone get that wall back up. Marlon, take care of it. Thanks for that. Act two begins with more of the same starting with three out of four new monkeys speaking Japanese for seemingly no reason. 
Either that, or they had the foresight of knowing that Columbia Pictures were going to be bought out by Sony in a few years. I thought you gentlemen might care for a bite to eat. Would anyone care for a tray? I'm afraid he was feeling a bit under the weather. <laughs> okay. I'm becoming convinced that this show is becoming the serial killer of things related to the concept of time. It leaves a bloody trail about 13 episodes long, and the only way the victims will ever find any justice is if it's put on trial and canceled for their actions. There is a plot in here somewhere, I promise, as we catch up with Dino in the diner where the rain cloud turns into a snow store. You know, Rita, not only can't I eat, but I ain't got no social life. Aw, oh, Dino. Don't let it rain on your parade. Yeah, I guess you're right. Every cloud has a silver lining. Oh, that's the spirit. You gotta weather the storm. Yeah, you gotta follow the light at the end of each tunnel. March to a different drummer. Don't throw rocks at class houses. Rush after every meal. <laughs> Only you can prevent forest fires. What is happening? I'm starting to wonder if this show was the real reason why writers went on strike in 1988. They didn't demand more money. They were hoping to find better ways to make money instead of writing for the new monkeys. In fact, I'm almost convinced that this next segment didn't even need writers at all. It's just Dino talking about how he was a fan of the original band and series. I was a monkey fanatic. I remember in kindergarten, me and three other guys, good friends of mine, we went around pretending we were the monkeys and we would get these little girls to chase us around on the monkey bars. Well, that was 20 years ago. They did their own stuff and it was real hot and we're hoping to be able to do our own stuff. And now I have more questions. For a show that's trying desperately to be its own thing, completely independent of the original entity that they're based on, why exactly should they be pandering to that original entity? That's the kind of thing late night talk show hosts do once they take over for the next guy unless you're Jay Leno. We've already known through all kinds of press materials that these were not your father's monkeys. So why belabor the point? Was it to assure the existing audience of classic Monkees fans that things were going to be okay? Was it to share the sentiment that they had a lot to live up to? Or did the producers think that it was going to crash upon takeoff so they might as well preemptively apologize for everything? Regardless of whatever the answer is, the show, unfortunately, must go on. Helen! Helen, will you try to get the hold of yourself? Keep your cool, Pinhead. I was just checking to see what else was on. <laughs> Unbelievable. Even the show itself, the very show that we're watching right now is pretty much imploring you to change the channel. Who does that? I went down to Janet's laboratory to try to solve our little weather problem. The other guys went to fetch Dino. Jared and I got to soak the button up. 
And let me tell you, there is nothing I like better than a soggy butt. I hope this works. It should work. Mountains are nature's way of trapping clouds, you know. So that solves the problem, I think. And it also teaches us a valuable lesson on how to deal with rogue precipitation. Go tell it on the mountain. Of course, that leaves us with seven minutes left, which means that the butler wearing a mountain for a hat didn't work. So, on to plan B. Cloud seeding, a radical solution to a radical problem. Yeah, but doesn't cloud seeding make it rain even more? Oh yeah, much more. Yeah, but you see there, eventually it'll rain itself out. And believe it or not, fighting water with water actually works. And thanks, Satan, because I had a feeling we'd be going through at least 39 other plans before hitting one that worked. Ring is in the air! <laughs> Love is everywhere! Little birdies chirping! They know. The grass is green! It's warm! The girls! But best of all, we're gonna graduate! But we don't go to school. So happy are the band that they finally get to perform their musical interlude just like the OG monkeys did on their show which makes me happy because I get to fast forward through music and speed up to the end of this sensory onslaught. You're a genius. This is it! This is a rock video! Ah, forget the video. I'm hungry. Let's go get something to eat. Oh, for fuck's sake, I've had enough. Sing, damn it, so I can skip over you! Are you sure? No more fake outs. You're not gonna go Return of the King on me, are you? Thank you, Dark Lord. For the record, the songs they sing to close out the show are their biggest hits, What I Want and I Don't Know. Or at least I think these are their biggest hits because in all the research I've done, both on the show and the band, Damned if I couldn't find any chart information of any kind regarding both the song or the album itself. The OG Monkeys made it on the charts with their own new album that year thanks to all the nostalgia they were writing the waves of, but the new Monkeys seemingly get zero love from anywhere. Which is a shame if true, because in one of the few iotas of credit I'll give this enterprise overall, the band sounds reasonably good. I like these songs. I wouldn't go putting them up on the Mount Rushmore of 80s hits, but they're perfectly enjoyable. In fact, I refuse to believe that both the song and the album didn't chart at all. It had to have had a little heat somewhere. A few weeks ago on our socials, we posted a disclaimer stating that there was far too much information about this show. The lack of information on how successful they were on the music side of things is especially galling because it's the music itself that was supposed to drum up interest in the TV show, not unlike how the original Monkees series operated in the first place. Given how much I kick myself for accuracy around here sometimes, I really hope I'm wrong about this and that they did make it onto a list somewhere anywhere. It doesn't even have to be the billboard charts. Hell, if Don Giller or the people at Worldwide Pants has footage of David Letterman doing a top 10 list related to the new monkeys, I'll even count that. Coming up next on 56, two hour long children's specials. First, 
a young boy travels through time in the flying sorcerer. Then at 1 o'clock, two boys are kidnapped by convicts in Breakout, here on WLVI-TV. The New Monkeys was scheduled for a 22-episode run in the 1987-88 TV season. Given how reportedly ill-received the show was, the order got cut down to 13. And so, they were able to monkey around right up until December of 1987, when they went extinct. At first glance, the show does have a lot of talent and good intentions behind it. But you know what they say about down here being paved with good intentions. So, where do the new monkeys fit in among the daydream believers of Telehel? Find out as the last train to Clarksville takes a detour through the nine circles. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. Okay, just to clarify, everything I'm about to say here is about the TV show, not the band itself, which, again, I have to mention because, again, the band was perfectly fine by themselves. But to the bandmates' own admission from the Yahoo oral history story, the material they were given for the show left a lot to be desired, and that even their acting could have used a little fine-tuning. Larry Saltis, in particular, saying, quote, I think I stunk as an actor. That was pretty obvious. I was just a musician doing the best that I could, end quote. And even so, the reminder that these were four kids from the 1980s plucked from obscurity to try to become instant overnight sensations. Just like the original four kids from the 1960s who, while they already had careers beforehand, were plucked just as quickly to also become overnight sensations. And therein lies the new version's fatal flaw from the get-go. The fact that they were trying a little too hard to duplicate the success of the original right down to the last detail. They tried to be instant pop stars. It didn't work. They tried to be TV stars. It didn't work. And all it resulted in was inevitable comparisons to the genuine article that, of course, these new performers who tried to be their own genuine article wound up getting dismissed as frauds even before they had a chance. So much so that once the show started to air, viewers made their thoughts vehemently clear. In the Yahoo interview, Marty Ross recalls, quote, They'd say something like, Go to hell. I'm going to watch you. I'll be on your every step. Don't turn around. There'll be a knife in your neck. Stuff like that. The bastard new monkeys. The idiot new monkeys. Death to the new monkeys. Literally written all over it with pictures of knives and guns and all this stuff. End quote while Dino Kovas recalls doing the part of damage control. Quote, It got to the point where I started going out and making phone calls to angry monkey fans, trying to appease them. I remember one time when I went to the president of the monkeys fan club. I went to her house because I was trying to be, for lack of a better term, an ambassador. I actually went to this woman's house. She had every picture in the living room of the monkeys. It was insane, like, oh my god, I just walked into the lion's den. But we talked. I was like, no, ma'am, we're not trying to take their place. That's not what we wanted to be called, but I'm not going to deny a job. And actually, she was nice about it. End quote. When one has a passionate pre-existing fan base and somebody tries to alter it in any way, you damn well better prepare yourself for how to handle the wrath of pre-existing fans. What's more, the bandmates didn't even want to be called the New Monkeys, but they were stuck with the name pretty much thanks to politicking on the production side of things. And the fact that somebody else tried to take advantage of an existing formula in the hopes of a similar result, 
What's that old saying about how repetition is a sign of insanity? The fact that the band really had no say in the matter and the powers that be were pulling a number of strings just to get the show on the air, any of that stuff is considered treachery. Furthermore, because the new monkeys tried too hard to be like the old monkeys, they would ultimately be considered heresy towards the OGs. Which, more or less, is a lesson that the people who produced the show should have retained the knowledge of. A reminder that this show is produced in part by Coca-Cola, who just two years earlier made one of the biggest marketing mistakes of all time by changing the formula of their soft drink, only to do an about-face a year later. In terms of poetic justice, the new monkeys were the new coke of music and television. And it all but surprises me that the original monkeys didn't then change their names to Monkeys Classic and make billions afterwards. Which brings us to the last reason why this show didn't work. We already had the monkeys. They were doing perfectly fine with their career revival. Having a second Monkees, no matter how talented they were, would have been akin to having a second Beatles. Gluttonously unnecessary, and one of the most shameless plays for greed while cashing in on nostalgic trends. Especially coming from a decade of excess where greed, for lack of a better word, was good. The new Monkees earned six out of nine circles of telehell. Part of the reason why the show didn't work overall could be best explained through David Hofstad's book, What Were You Thinking? Quote, When Schneider and Rafelson saw the audition tapes, they hit the ceiling. Where's the counterculture? Schneider asked. Steve Blauner replied, Bert, you're living in a time warp. 20 years ago, half the youth was alienated. Today, the 1980s, all these kids care about is when they're gonna get their first Camaro or their next Mercedes. There's maybe 5% of them out there who are counterculture and they're slam dancing and wearing nipple rings." End quote. Even though people were fond of the reruns of the original Monkees, those alienated kids eventually grew up, got jobs, started families, and they tried to teach their children not to make the same mistakes they made when they were younger. People change with the times. And although the spirit of the original series was alive and well to some people, that mentality was never going to work in the 1980s. Or to put it another way again... Monkeys weren't about music, they were about rebellion, about political and social upheaval. Okay, maybe not political upheaval, but it was a chance for young talent to relate to a young audience and a generation that needed both a positive influence and a distraction from the troubles of the world. Especially in the 1960s. This was not that. Once again, the reminder that it wasn't the band members' fault that things turned out this way. It was all the work of people who tasted success one time, thought it would work a second time, and ultimately realized that love was only true in fairy tales. The original monkeys worked once. It did not need to work a second time. As a postscript, do not feel sorry for Larry, Dino, Jared, or Marty. All of them not only went on to have durable careers in music after the show ended, and even remember the experience somewhat fondly in spite of some of the more tumultuous moments they had, as a fitting capstone, even the original monkeys eventually realized that the new ones were just doing something that few people would ever get a chance to do, and the least they could do was have fun with it. And as it often does with many things, history has turned out to be a lot kinder to them in hindsight. In the Yahoo oral history, Dino Kovas sums up the turnaround thusly, quote, 
it's funny, because we have, like, maybe 15 fans. We know it was important for a few people. I'll give you an example, and it's actually a great example. A friend of mine who was working on the video show Back Porch Video, when he got older, he started directing this church television show. It was like this gospel thing. The drummer of the show's gospel band overheard him talking to me one day, and he was like, wait a minute, Dino from the New Monkees? Oh my God, I used to watch them all the time. And he asked if I would go have coffee with him the next time I was in town. This kid was a proper jazz drummer. I'm like, dude, you're a better drummer than I ever was. And he goes, when I was a little kid and I saw you on the new monkeys, I saw that you were having fun. That's when I knew I wanted to play drums. And that just blew my mind. And then I thought, wow, that's kind of what Mickey Dolenz did for me. End quote. While Larry Saltis caps the story by saying, quote, I often joke with people. I started at the top and worked my way to the bottom. But I shouldn't even think of it that way because it was a great opportunity and I'm glad I got to be a part of it. And I'm glad I got to know these other three guys, end quote. And you know what? I'm glad we got to know these guys too. On a personal note before we go, as ridiculous as this will sound, it's taken me three years, three years to build up enough will and determination to actually finish writing and cutting this episode together. And I apologize if this still sounded like the biggest word salad you've ever heard. That being said, I can't recommend enough the article on Yahoo called An Oral History of the New Monkeys if you wanted to know the entire story. They probably did a much better job summing things up than I ever could, but truthfully and honestly, I'm glad this one is done. Just as I'm glad that our three shows in three days experiment is also done. And I never want to do it again. No matter how much the boss wants me to. Next time on Telehell, our next task is going to be a two-man job, as we bring on somebody who knows a thing or two about football to help us break the seal on a new wing of... The Big Game Hall of Shame. Hi, everybody! Come on and feel the cold. Come to Minnesota where winter's the hottest time of the year. It's winter magic! Until then. If it's not in telehell, it's not worth a damn. The part of the Please Stand By guy was played by Rob Maurer. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. You know that thing that people do in order to communicate with each other without actually having to look each other face to face? You know, social media? Well, we do that. Look for us on X, Facebook, and now Blue Sky. All three of them at Telehell Podcast. And don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe, and pretty much tell us what you think of our show everywhere that you can stream us. And also in our complaint line, telehellpodcast at gmail.com. 